This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Eric Berry. Hey, y'all. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Jeff. I don't know if I'm brave enough to try and say your last name. Please try it. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Kreeftmeyer. That's almost it. It's Kreeftmeyer or Kreeftmeyer. Ah, uh, well, I, I need to practice my Dutch or something, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the the double E uh, trips everyone up. Yep. I have been to Amsterdam. It's a fun city. It is, isn't it? Yep. Beautiful place. Yep. So do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are, what you do? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm uh, Jeff Kreeftmeyer, or Kreeftmeyer, uh, and I'm a Ruby and Elixir developer at AppSignal. And AppSignal is an application monitoring tool that tracks errors, uh, performance, and host metrics, uh, as well as custom metrics for your uh, Ruby and Elixir apps. So if you have a a Rails or Phoenix app, uh, we'll give you insights into your application's health and we'll let you know when things go wrong. Um, My work there involves uh, helping maintain the Elixir and Ruby integrations, uh, so the, the part that you install in your application uh, that allows us to get metrics from uh, from it, uh, mm-hmm. and the Elixir.com app itself. But I also write for our newsletters named uh, Ruby Magic and Elixir Alchemy, and our blog series named uh, App Signal Academy. Love it. Actually, that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. So I run CodeFund, which uh, you know about already. CodeFund is an ad platform that exists to help generate funding for open source developers. One of the things I wanted to be able to do that I've had in the Ruby world for so long is this tool that, that I think a lot of people use, which is New Relic. And so when, when I thought, okay, I need profiling tools, how do I do this? And immediately my mind went to New Relic. And I realized that even though New Relic is a great tool, they don't have any support for Elixir. So I started researching and looking and I found out that I think AppSignal is the only company out there that truly provides uh, monitoring, error tracking, and uh, SQL profiling for Elixir apps, and so I immediately that I didn't I didn't put the two and two together with you, and with this upcoming podcast and anything like that. I literally like, oh, this is what I need as a customer, and I installed it, and I've been running it for a couple of days now. Very very happy. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think we're still the only one that has official support for Elixir, but I'm not very sure. <laughs> That's great to hear. I didn't put one, uh, two and two together when I saw your name either. So, yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so that's fine. <laughs> so Eric, are you saying that he should come on an Elixir podcast if somebody had one? I think that might be a very good call. Okay. 
Like if somebody have happened to have an elixir podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know a guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but thanks. And by the way, the integration, and I again, I was actually literally, without knowing the topic of this, was going to use AppSignal as my pick for today. Hopefully, we don't have a competing advertiser or sponsor for this podcast. But, but the integration, the, the ease of integration was so simple, and your documentation made it so simple to integrate and get up and rolling. I thought it was fantastic. So uh, kudos to you. Oh, thank you very much. But there goes my pick, by the way, because my pick was AppSignal as well. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> and comparatively to New Relic, which I'm sure most people have heard of, AppSignal is fairly cheaper, isn't it? Well, what we do for small to medium uh, sites. Yeah, what we do is we don't uh, charge per host, so uh, we par- charge per per request. Uh, and that's mostly where, where the difference in price comes from. Mm-hmm. So if you have multiple uh, apps running, um, you, you just get a number of requests in your plan and that, and that just, you can spread that out over all of your apps uh, any way you like. So I think, I think New Relic still does the mm-hmm. per host pricing thing. So that's one of the reasons why uh, AppSignal was, was started because we thought that was unfair a little bit. Yeah, pay for what you use instead of how many servers you have. Yeah, it's really cool because I've looked at some of the New Relic pricing in the past and it is insane on how much they charge. Yeah, I mean, it's a great tool for profiling, but yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, And and I've used it off and on in the past and usually it's, okay, this month I'm going to be working on performance, so I'll pay for a month (laughs) and then I'll turn it back off. So. Actually, good strategy. <laughs> well, there you go. That that idea also. I mean, I and I talked to who did I talk? I talked to I can't remember his name. Who runs Elixir Sips? The and conversation, Josh yeah, Josh Adams. Uh, he's a host on Elixir Mix podcast that both Chuck and I are on. And I asked him. I said, "Do you have an issue where people pay for a month, get on, download every video, and then?" Stop payment. He's, yeah, that happens all the time. And then I told Josh, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm one of the guys that did that. <laughs> but I did that with Railscast. I did that with the Elixir Sips. I did that with Egghead. Like a lot of these sites, I'm like, oh, man, I, I'm not going to get to it all, but I don't want to pay ongoing. It's kind of a hole in the system. Uh, Dave, do you run into that with uh, Drifting Ruby? I do. And, you know, te- technically, uh, there is a clause that says, you know, you're allowed to download these videos and keep them while you are a subscriber. So technically, if you download them all after you subscribe for one month, you cancel, I'm not going to come beating on your door, you know, and say, hey, did you delete all those? No, because I mean, that's, that's silly and ridiculous. But what I do take away from it is people found it valuable enough to support me, even if it was for one month for right. all my work. And it's something that they see that it's going to educate them to make them better. And so I'm okay with it. You know, there's always going to be people like that. But then the vast majority are your core supporters that will support you month over month. And, you know, uh, there's not much you can do about it, except for going the DRM route. And I'm definitely not going to do that. So, uh, you know, people will do what they need to do. And I've been guilty of it too. So, you know, it'd be very hypocritical for me to say, hey, why are you subscribing for five minutes and then canceling. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, then I apologize. Everything I said was a lie. I didn't do any of that. Nothing happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 I reveal myself as a, an exploiter of uh, New Relic and then everybody comes clean. I got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, don't think, I don't think we have this problem a lot at AppSignal. Uh, and I think that's mostly because we also do error reporting and host mm-hmm. metrics. So we'll stop doing that if you uh, if you decide to cancel, obviously. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. Also, I've never I've never done that before. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> you are all horrible. <laughs> I, know, right? uh, I guess we're just American. <laughs> Those values. Hey, with New Relic, I used what I paid for. Incidentally, I don't think I've ever done what you guys talked about with video series, though I probably have cheated on something else. So, <laughs> but yeah, one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to dive into here, you know, since we're talking about App Signal and you know New Relic performance, is what's your approach to performance on Rails? You know, when people come to you and they're like, "Okay, you know, I'm running this on App Signal, and it looks like this page is taking a long time to load." What do you tell them to do to fix it? Well, we, we started the blog series to kind of help people uh, get over that and to give them some handhold to find stuff they can, they can improve on. And a lot of this, these things are, are usually N plus one queries where you do too many queries for the, for the page you're loading and, and stuff like that. But sometimes you just run into... Uh, into the limits that of what Ruby can do, right? You have to make a lot of calculations and stuff like that, and then uh, and then stuff like caching becomes um, becomes a, a very good way to uh, to do something about that. So it's it's never really really a, a single issue. Mm-hmm. It's always a little bit different. That's it's also one of the challenges we have as a company that that everybody's app is very different. And that also is difficult for us to, to write an integration, right? To hook into everything and make it work for every app. So a lot of our support is also, we, we do support as in people come in and they talk to us directly. Um, so they come with their technical issues so we can help them directly. But it's usually something, it's usually set up related, right? So that there's, they use a they they're running on a Rails app, but there's this strange thing or this gem that overrides that monkey patches are monkey patching and and then and then stuff uh, stuff mm-hmm. goes a little bit weird. But everybody's setup is is different, and I think everybody's performance problems are different because of that. But um, giving uh, customers data about that is is a good first step to uh, to get them uh, to get them closer to the solution. Makes sense. Most of these posts are actually about n plus one queries and caching and i'm just kind of go gonna go to something that i think i misunderstood for a long time and that is that and this came out in the video you sent us to watch beforehand it was between dhh and uh, nate berkopek who was on a previous episode of this show and they were talking about russian doll caching and how n plus one queries isn't always a bad thing and i didn't quite make the connection in my head and i was wondering if you can kind of explain how that works, specifically Russian doll caching for those that aren't familiar with it. Yeah. If we're going to talk about Russian doll caching, we first need to understand what, what fragment caching is. Okay. So I'll go over that uh, quickly. Fragment caching is like a taking a piece or, or a fragment, if you will, uh, from the rendered view and storing it for reuse later. So if we have a, you know, a Rails-powered blog, 
right? And um, the blog has an index page that lists all published articles. So when a request comes into that, we'll have to go through the controller and fetch the articles from the database via the model and eventually pass the data to the view to be rendered. And with random caching, what you can do is you can wrap each article's HTML in the view in, in a cache block. Mm -hmm. um, so when the view renders, it will, it will check if the cache has an HTML snippet for this article already. And if it does, it will use that HTML fragment instead of rendering the article's HTML again. Um, and if it doesn't, it will render the HTML for that article and store it as a, as a fragment. So, um, uh, so that only caches in the view. Uh, the article is still fetched from the database every time you, you, you load the page. And um, uh, but it but it actually provides a nice speed up because uh, rendering the page in itself is kind of a slow operation. So in um, in Rails, the cache fragments are automatically expired because of their cache keys. So if you create a fragment cache block, you you need to pass the object that that's being used in that HTML block uh, to the the cache helper as an argument. So and Rails will use that object to calculate a cache key. So whenever the object in the view changes, uh, so the object that's used in the view, if that changes, the fragment in the cache is automatically marked stale. So that means it autom automatically drops from the cache. You don't, you don't get to use it anymore. This also includes the, the template's digest. So the whole template is digested and pushed into the, into the cache key. So whenever anything in your template changes, um, the fragment is also dropped from the cache. So this saves uh, some worrying about caching validation, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, Russian doll caching is simply putting fragment caches in other fragment caches. So it's, it's just nesting them inside each other, much like a, a Russian doll. So if we use the blog example again, if our articles all have comments, we can put the comments inside of the article fragments. But besides that, we can also wrap the comments in their own cache blocks. So that means we need to cache the comments twice, uh, once separately, so for each comment, and once in the, uh, the articles fragment. So that means everything's cached twice. That might, might sound a, a little weird, but uh, with a warm cache, uh, each request will only load the article fragments. So that means the comment fragments are pretty much unused until a comment gets added or removed, right? So if that happens, the outer article fragment that includes the comments needs to be dropped because it's stale, because it includes removed or updated comments. So you'll need to make sure that the article object is updated uh, whenever anything changes to its comments. And you can do that using, uh, in the model, uh, there's an attribute in the belongs to relation for that, and it's called touch. And you can set it to true, and that will uh, make a, a, an updated comment always touch its, its parent article. Now, when that happens, uh, the comments cache uh, fragment, as well as the articles uh, fragment, are marked stale. So when a new request comes in, the article fragment and the comment fragment are regenerated, and all other comments that are in that article are just taken from the cache again. So this allows you to, uh, this will only load the uh, updated comment again and the article or render the, the, the article again. And that saves time on rendering because most of the comments are still uh, straight from the cache, right? So Russian doll caching is not particularly or, or in any way faster than regular fragment caching. Um, but when parts of your, app, uh, of your page sometimes do update, uh, 
re-rendering that page uh, while it's updated becomes faster because parts, other parts of that page are still uh, in the cache. So what uh, David Heidemar Hansen and Nate Birkbeck talked about in that video was uh, using that as an advantage and in combination with N plus one queries. So we're always taught not to do that because uh, right, N plus one query is a situation where a query gets executed uh, for every loaded item. So in our previous example, that would mean that all comments will get fetched for every article. So that means that the query counts N plus one, where N is the number of articles. And usually you're told to preload the comments there. So that would uh, result in two queries to be executed, mm -hmm. which are the, 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 the article query and the, the comment query uh, that uh, finds all articles for, uh, no, all comments for all articles. Um, but with Russian doll caching, the preloading thing is, is you, you do that to uh, get around the lazy loading that Rails does. Because the lazy loading will load the comments in the view for every article. And if you use the preloading, you will get you will load everything in the controller beforehand. Now, if you use Russian doll caching, in the example I gave before, so when you have the article and then all comments inside that also cached, the list of comments is already cached inside of the articles fragment. So there's no real reason to fetch them from the database. And the only way to not do that is to not preload them in the controller. So if you embrace the N plus one and call N plus one a feature, you can and defer that to the view, you cannot run the query when the view is not rendered. And that will give you a very nice speed up because that will prevent you from accessing the, the database. Now, this does require your cache to be very reliable and very available, which is now we're doing two things that we're, we've always been taught not to do. We're doing N plus one queries and we're relying on the cache to make our app not very slow, which is, mm -hmm. um, which is something that the, the community is kind of split about, I think, um, because there's a lot of uh, articles out there that say, that respond to this video that we're talking about right now, that, that, that say that uh, David is wrong and, and we should never do N plus one queries like, like, like we're taught, right? Right. So just to clarify, in the fragment cache for, say, our article here, it just lists the comments, but it doesn't include the HTML that needs to be rendered for each comment. Is, is that kind of what I gathered? So when it does the lookup, then it'll load all the other comment fragments. It'll actually store the rendered HTML into the cache okay. system. And I think caching... Mm -hmm. I believe well, it does. Uh, it it just depends on where the fragment cache is. So if you're fragmenting cache, caching each individual column or comment, then each one of those individual comments will be given a cache key and right. the rendered HTML stored in the cache. Then you have a parent cache for maybe all of the comments or the article, and that would then store that rendered HTML within the cache key or the cache system as well. Exactly. And the article fragment will include all of the comments. Yeah. So, so then does it have to re-render for each comment? Oh, I see. So the when it goes back and rebuilds, it'll rebuild off of the other fragments. 
Yeah. Build so it's hitting article it. fragment. Yeah. So hitting it from a Redis or Memcached server uh-huh. is still going to be a lot faster than pulling it from the database and then having to have the ERB, whether it's eRuby or eRubinus, render the HTML and then deliver that to the application or the web server to deliver. Right. So being able to pull it directly from the cache and then send that to the web server is going to be a lot faster uh, in most cases and not, not in all. And, you know, I want to say that I love the overall idea of caching because it's almost like a free performance boost. It's going to be your best bang for the buck. But with that also come some problems that you have to be smart on how you're caching. You know, using the object as your cache key or scoping with uh, Rails, you can scope multiple cache keys or multiple objects as your cache key. So if you have something that's kind of unrelated and that's getting cached and it doesn't necessarily touch your parent object, then you may want to consider including that within your cache key as well, just so you don't run into a invalid cache that's still getting rendered. And you also have to think of permissions. So taking the article and comments uh, example, if you have the ability where a user can edit their own comments, but they cannot edit other people's comments, if that comment is cached, including the edit button for that object or for that uh, comment, then you're essentially going to be storing in the cache the comment along with the edit button. Of course, your application would have the necessary protection to not allow them to actually edit it, but that button would still be displayed for users who do not have access to edit that comment. So you do want to be careful on what you are caching and what you're not caching. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And a, a solution to that that some people take is, is uh, I think David Heinemarie Hansen also coined this, but it's called uh, JavaScript sprinkles, where you load the page without that edit button and then do a, a request after the page is loaded uh, to figure out if, if you should show an edit button there or not. Yeah, that makes sense as well. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. So do you just have some kind of uh, XHR request then that goes and says, is this person capable of editing this thing? And then it just inserts it? Yeah, either you can uh, do that or uh, you can do... Um, you can do a request that returns HTML and then insert that into the page. Oh, that's, okay. That's what a stimulus, the, the JavaScript mm-hmm. framework uh, does. Um, it will just, it will just fetch HTML and then insert it. Yeah. I'm, I've been playing with stimulus. I'm going to be speaking about it at the framework summit in park city, Utah in October. Nice. We've had a lot of experience with, um, I should say, I've had a lot of experience with Russian doll caching as well. Uh, it's it's kind of like that superpower that's hidden in Rails that not a lot of people understand, I believe. 
caching plays such an integral part of fast applications. You know, we talk about performance a lot, but really performance is is smoke and mirrors. Um, it's how fast can we can we uh, load and cache data and then just show the cache data? Mm-hmm. In the application that I that I worked on before, it was um, it was a text messaging platform, and so we did tons of caching, all the way down to microscopic caching. We did we did query caching, we did uh, overall page caching, we did uh, Russian doll caching, and the way and and we had this. It, so uh, such a big part of the application was all about handling that cache key. If the cache key was handled properly, and then when the right touches occurred, then you always know that your data is going to be accurate to the to the latest point, but also everything else would be cached. So I really think that even though oftentimes people say, you know, don't use it, you don't need to use it, you just need query optimization. No, that's not really the case. I think that the caching will play a huge part in making your app seem near real time. I, I think it depends too. I mean, if you've got some small app with a small user base, you're not yeah. pulling a ton of data, right? Then yeah, your, your queries are probably, you know, where you need to optimize. But once you're displaying a lot of data and you're, yeah, you're, you're in a position like what you're talking about. I mean, I can't imagine how many text messages you're pushing through a system like that. Yeah. yeah. Then you're, you're looking at it and going, yeah, how, how many of these queries can we just plain out avoid? Mm-hmm. And also, uh, with caching, you get the other benefit if you want to make your application more complex with adding in a third component of background workers, you can do cache warming. And cache warming is where you have something that's been expired. You kick off a background job to re-render that view, not to be displayed or anything. It just happens in the background. But it's going to go through that HTML, or in this case, the ERB, and it's going to render out all that data, which means it's going to then store that new cache within your cache store. So with cache warming, even though objects are getting touched and the cache is getting stale, you can still have that cache rebuilt without having the end user have to make that first request to have it rebuilt. So you can definitely leverage that for a lot of performance too. If you are on a page where if the cache does suddenly go away, whether you restart your Redis server or whatever, and reloading that page would take 10 seconds to load, then that would be a perfect chance to do something like a cache warming so you don't slow down the user, but you still get the perks and benefits of the fragment caching. How do you perform cache warming? So with Action Controller, you can do a render. So you would just have to build out the variables that would be needed. So, for example, if you have the articles and whenever a comment is added, it's going to expire the comment, but then it's also going to expire the article. You could have it go into the background worker. Just have, I hate using a callback, so I'd probably put it in my controller or something for better visibility, but you would kick off a background job and that background job would then re-render that comment and it would also re-render the articles and or that article and that article would go through in the background job render out the actual html and by doing that it's going to rebuild that cache what do you call within the background job so let's say you have a sidekick or rescue job so i believe it's if you're on rails 5 or later it's action controller renderer 
like it's spelled kind of funny. And I'll actually pick that as one of my picks. I covered that in a Drifting Ruby episode on the Action Controller renderer. And it's um, actually been really useful on more complex applications where I didn't want to slow down the end user, but I still wanted it to rebuild that cache in the background. Yeah. So out of curiosity, does something like this exist for Phoenix? If you switch to Rails, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a caching thing for Elixir. I could be wrong on this, by the way, but I don't think there's an uh, actual fragment uh, or Russian doll caching kind of thing for, for Phoenix right now. Gotcha. Um, you, you can use uh, Turbo Links, by the way. It's that's yeah, I actually do use Turbo Links, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's such an amazing tool. One other thing I want to ask about this because we're we're still pretty close to the conversation on caching and that is you know so when do you want to use lazy loading and russian doll caching and when do you not want to i mean is there is there a disadvantage or are there scenarios where it's like you know what uh yeah it's a cool feature but terrible idea well that depends on a couple of things and one of them is your opinion about this um (laughs) fair enough i think well, the idea that N plus one is a feature and that you should uh, rely on your Russian doll caching strategy to mitigate the problems that causes, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not a generally accepted uh, thing, I think. But yeah, you can do that, but that only applies to a very specific uh, scenario where you have cache that you never draw, that's always reliable, that's always there, and that mm-hmm. you can count on to, to, to speed up your app. I think in the video we've been talking about, David says that one page in Basecamp has 850 queries uh, to render the page. And while that could probably work, that would make a very slow page if it's not probably a very slow page if if somehow the the caching layer uh, doesn't work. And so they spend a lot of time or, or resources probably to, to make sure that doesn't happen. If you uh, treat your caching layer as a thing that's pretty much optional and just, and just is there most of the time, but you're not relying on it, then, yeah, then this N plus one thing doesn't really work for you, I think. I'm not sure. What, what do you all think? I think that if you are going to be rendering a lot of partials within your application, so if you have an index view and that index view is displaying 100 records and within there you are rendering out each one of those rows as a separate partial, that's going to take a long time to load within your application, even if it's a small table, simply because rendering partials and stuff is a expensive operation. So leveraging fragment caching there, even if we're not talking about a M plus one query, that's going to definitely provide a boost to your application because now you're not having to load or re-render the same partial 100 different times with different content. Instead, it's just going to pull it straight from the cache you know, a hundred separate times, that's still going to be a lot faster than pulling it from yeah. or rendering it from the view. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that's if you don't do any caching at all, then, then doing fragment caching to fix the performance hit that uh, rendering all of this HTML uh, gives you is a very good first step to take. Yeah. And if someone is not doing caching yet in their application, and if it's something where they do see that they'll get a benefit from doing it, my biggest recommendation would be to take it slow. 
because if you've done any kind of networking or anything like that uh, and you run into problems, almost always it comes back to some kind of DNS issue. Much like when doing caching and programming, if you run into inconsistencies or problems, it's going to almost always come back to a caching issue. So you want to take it slow and be careful. Make sure that you're registering your keys correctly and definitely give it a full regression You know, to make sure that you're not exposing things and that you're not uh, displaying invalid or stale caches. Exactly. And I think that fragment caching is a good fit for that because it's... If you use the normal cache keys, it's kind of difficult to show your users still uh, data because the updated at date and the ID of the object you're showing and the, the whole uh, digest of the template is in there. So you're going to have to add more than one object into your fragment to be able to, to get this problem. I think. So I think that's a good first step there. I want to ask a question that's not necessarily cache related or not actually cache related at all. Uh, you have a blog at jeffkriftmeyer.com. <laughs> yeah, uh, Yep. And uh, awesome content. One of the posts that you talk about, uh, one of your posts talks about keeping open source, pro- open source projects maintainable. Now with CodeVun, I'm always thinking about long-term maintenance of open source. Talk to me about what led you to write that, and also what can you like share the 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 core of what that post is about, if you remember it. Well, I give three examples of stuff you should not do, or or things you should do, and they're all based on uh, mistakes I made in the past. Mm-hmm. So I had back in the day, I I wrote a, a background job system because this was back when um, I was using MongoDB and a delayed job didn't support it. So okay. I wrote a background job system called Navi. Um, and that had adapters for everything uh, built in. And that burnt me out quite fast. Um, and the second one is dropping support for older versions of your dependencies. And that came from a Vim plugin I wrote. And then a new version of Vim came out. And the old stuff uh, just kept stayed in there and and... Uh, was a pain to update because that was Vim 6, I think. So everything was still horrible, but they fixed everything right now. And the last one is handover projects if you can't help anymore. And that's, well, that, that was, um, I wrote uh, an RSpec formatter called FUBAR, which uh, is uh, the progress bar formatter. And I got into a situation where I wasn't using RSpec anymore at a job I worked at uh, and that uh, it lasted one year before I uh, before I was able to give that over to somebody who was using RSpec and was able to to try that. So this this whole article is is completely based off me. Uh, yeah, well, me messing up pretty much. I love it. You mentioned Vim. That's some kind of Emacs plugin, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the key combo to get Vim mode in Emacs is Control X, Control C, Vim, Enter. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an emacs guy aren't you chuck yeah all right yeah. that's why i can rattle that off i don't know if i could do it the other way off the top of my head so yeah i ran i ran into an issue uh the other day i'm working on a <clears throat> on a on a project and um there's a dependency that hasn't been updated in over a year and so there's a pull request there waiting for people to, you know, waiting for, for it to be merged to basically solve 
solve all all issues that are going on and and they're not doing anything. So I actually submitted an issue requesting to take over as the uh, the maintainer of the project only because I'd like to continue to see that thing being maintained. And unfortunately, a lot of times these maintainers are like, hey, it's not part of my life anymore. I'm not using this anymore. It's more hassle than it's worth. I'm out. Um, so yeah, it's. It, I, I love the post that you have here. I appreciate you sharing that. And I also think that that uh, offering to take over the project is the best thing you can do in a situation like that. Because usually it's it's, like you said, um, the situation is, I'm not using this thing anymore and I have other stuff that's going on in my life. So I, I don't know. Um, and that was I, uh, Jeff uh, Falkner took uh, FUBAR over at the, at the, the perfect moment. So th mm. this took a year because I didn't work on it. And Jeff was like, why aren't you working on this? This thing is great. Uh, uh, can I maintain it for you? And he was like, yes. So he, um, he made it ready for RSpec 3, I think, and uh, has been maintaining it ever since. So uh, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> You're a good guy, Jeff. So, N plus one queries. Is it a uh, bug or a feature? <laughs> I'm going to say if you do nothing about it, then it's a bug. But if you implement something around it, like fragment caching, then it can be a feature. It's funny because you ask this, and I'm thinking, for me, a bug is, you know, specific, usually user-facing issues you know it, it's not a bug it's an inefficiency unless you turn it into something else right so it, it's a feature it just might not be a desirable feature depending on how you address it yeah so n plus one is an undesirable feature unless you address it properly <laughs> no, I, I, no i think in the video david calls n plus one a feature um yeah, because yeah. because it will keep uh, it will keep your controllers em uh, empty and, and clean and, and stuff like that. And you can render parts of the page without needing the rest. And, and so it's not really an outward facing feature, but it's more a feature for, for the developer. But it's not necessarily a bug, but you, if you have, if and only if you have a very nice, a very, very good way to fix that. And Russian doll caching could be it. But then you, well, like I said, you need a very reliable caching layer for that. What what do you recommend as a very reliable caching layer? Well, you're going to need to set up a system where you have where whatever whatever caching you have, because that doesn't really matter. We use uh, Memcache, for example, at, at, at AppSignal, but where that's always available, you, you need to make sure uh, that always happens. You never need to drop the cache. And I know from experience, there are situations. Uh, in AppSignal, we, we do a lot of caching uh, in the admin, so on, on, on our, our side to, to make our work easier uh, and faster. Um, but there is, there is sometimes an issue where we, um, we have a, um, a key that goes wrong and we have to drop a part of the cache to be able to continue, continue work or to not get stale data uh, at the back end. So if that happens, or if you're relying on your caching layer, you should make very sure that never happens. We don't rely on our caching layer like this. Um, we try to uh, do, do it the old-fashioned way and uh, make our app performant and uh, use caching as a layer on top of that instead of uh, relying on it that much. But um, maybe that will change in the future. I don't know. 
So we've talked a lot about the caching of views within Rails, but their caching goes and extends so much far beyond that, where you can use something like Redis to store your sessions for your application. You can also use it if you're using Sidekick to control your queue for your backlog or for your uh, queue of background workers, the jobs that need to be performed. And so I bring all of this up because if you're going to use something like Redis to do all of these things, then you want, want to make sure that you are separating things out to different databases. So with Redis, even on a single Redis instance, you can have several different databases that you can store your stuff in. So for any kind of view caching, I would store on one database. If I'm storing stuff like uh, sessions in Redis, so rail sessions or user sessions, then I would store that in a separate database. And for something like Psychic, even though it's using Redis, that has to be persisted because I don't want running out of cache memory or cache store to then start erasing some of my background jobs that I have queued up. So you would want a separate Redis instance that has persisted data, meaning that it's going to write that cache to disk periodically. And if that server is ever rebooted, it'll rebuild that cache. Whereas your sessions or your uh, fragment caching of the views could go into a non-persistent database. And that's going to solve some complexities or problems that you may face down the road that won't be immediately visible. And the nice thing about separating out within a non-persistent database or cache store, the sessions and your fragment caches and maybe some calculation caches is that when you go to clear your Rails uh, cache, so if you, from within the Rails console, you do a Rails... Uh, cache clear, then you're not going to run into a situation where now you just booted all of your users out of the system because the sessions are stored within the cache system. It's just going to clear out the fragment caches. Exactly. It's a very valuable tip. Don't don't put uh, data you want to persist in an uh, at least a recently used or LRU cache. So yep. that's, that's a good one. Remember this, everyone, when you're using Redis as a cache store. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready for picks or is there something else we need to bring up? I got to say, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah. it's, it's been great having you on, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way. It's, uh, it's been great to be on. Well, thanks for coming and sharing your expertise. Yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, before we do that, though, where do people find you online? I'm on, on jeffcavemeyer.com. And I'm on Twitter still. And you can always email me at jeff at appsignal.com. And on Twitter, it's your name, just like? Yeah, without the, the Jeff. So it's Jay Kreifmeyer. Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. Or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Dave, do you have some picks for us? 
Yeah, sure. So my first pick, I'll pick the Drifter Ruby episode on the action controller renderer, which is great for rendering outside of the controller. And my second pick is going to be something that I've actually been in possession of for probably about three years, but I never used it. It wasn't until recently that I actually find some uses for it. And it's a scroll saw from, so yes, Chuck, another tool. Um, <laughs> it's a scroll saw, which is basically just a little uh, saw blade that just goes up and down, up and down really fast. And you can just move a wood piece through it to do some kind of carving. Uh, it's actually really difficult to master. I'm probably nowhere near that. But it's very handy if you need to make some pretty precise different types of cuts. Nice. I'm going to have to go check it out at Harbor Freight or something. Uh, Eric, what are your picks? Uh, I'll pick a couple of tools that I use uh, that I enjoy. The first one, which I know probably a lot of you have used, uh, is uh, called Skitch. Now, Skitch is a screen capture tool that allows you to take snapshots and then you can mark them up and it stores them to your Evernote. So Skitch a while ago was bought by Evernote. It's it's a free product, but every time that you uh, take a snapshot, you can drag out. They have a little tab on the bottom where you can drag an image directly. So it's super quick to just grab a full image or you can copy and share URL. And it's really, really pretty neat. What I love about it is I can view the uh, previous sketch snapshots that I've had in like few years and years of snapshots that I've taken. So that's one of them. The other one that I tend to really enjoy is a, uh, a library written by, uh, I really want to give him credit, but this library that uh, is basically TMUX for, for Mac, it's called Mert. And what it does is it makes it so that you can create a little script, a little YAML file, drop it into your home folder or wherever. And then when you want to run an app, you can say Mert start and then your app name and it'll launch all of these windows in iTerm. It'll separate them out. It'll separate your, your panes. And um, basically you can run any script in any one of those terminals uh, immediately with Mert. So fantastic, fantastic, fantastic library. So that, those are my picks. Sounds good. It's, uh, yeah. Egg, Eggplant IO is the, huh. is the creator. And I can't remember his real name, but his uh, GitHub is Eggplant Eggplanet IO. Yeah, Interesting. That's, that's an organization and there's a... Oh, right. Brian there. Gonzalez. Oh, there oh. you go. Yes. Brian Gonzalez, you are my hero. Nice. All right. I'm going to jump in here. So I'm kind of going back and forth. I was kind of inspired by uh, Eric's pick of Sketch. I use that somewhat frequently. but So I guess I'll, I'll split the difference and I'll do one of one kind of pick and one of the other kind of pick. Uh, but the first pick that I have is Notion.so. And it's a system... Uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a super-powered wiki, for lack of a better term. Um, so you can set up pages. Yeah, uh, most of that's WYSIWYG and you can just add uh, information to a page. And some of the ways that I'm using it is they have databases, which are essentially spreadsheets, but you can change the view on your database so that, you know, it'll sort by one column like status, and then it looks like a Trello board. Um, it has a few other features in it um, where you can actually share information, you can embed videos, um, and it's it's been really, really handy. Um, I've been moving all of the processes that we use to manage the podcasts over to there. So anyway, it's it's been really, really nice. They're only one or two things that I wish it had, and it's kind of new, so it doesn't have them. One is a public API, 
And going along with that is uh, integration into something like Zapier. And the reason is, is because I just want to automate parts of the thing. And, and it's a little bit difficult to do at the moment. But I asked them about an API. They said they've had a ton of requests for it. So I think it's just a matter of time before they have it. And in the meantime, we've also moved, for example, off of Pipedrive, which is what we've been using to uh, keep track of like our, our sales funnels and our, our guest funnels and things like that. Uh, just because you can kind of do the Trello thing over on Notion. So it's it's a little bit more work in some ways and a little less work in other ways because it's all in one place. The other pick that I have, I'm just going to do both of the other picks that I was going to do. If you've been watching, you know, some of the things that have been going on in my life lately, um, you know, I've kind of been up and down. I, I think Eric's more aware of this than some of the other folks uh, that I interact with on a regular basis just because he's here and we've talked about it. But... Uh, a couple of things that have helped me out lately with that, you know, uh, with grieving and just with, you know, G life sucks today, you know, for no particular reason. One is, these are both books. One is The Traveler's Gift by Andy Andrews. I really enjoyed that. And it's a narrated story with a bunch of kind of life lessons. So I, I guess it's kind of a parable for lack of a better term, but the, it, it very explicitly calls out the life lessons. So anyway, if you're looking for some direction as far as, you know, why isn't my life as good as I want it to be, or life is really hard right now, um, it really addresses that in a very poignant way. And then the other one, and I just finished this book this morning, and I'd watched the movie and the movie's really great as well. It's The Shack. And that one's by William Paul Young. So yeah, both of those were just really, really helpful for me to just kind of explore the inner depths of what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and how I feel about specific aspects of life. And then also just to give me a little bit of inspiration and direction as far as what I can do to make things better. And so, yeah, I've, I've listened to both of those on Audible and really, really enjoyed those. So anyway, uh, those are my picks. Jeff, do you have some picks? I do. Uh, my first pick is uh, ASCII doc which is a text-to-HTML language like, like Markdown, for example. It doesn't only convert to HTML, but it also does DocBook and PDF. I haven't used it for that. I've been using it on my blog. I switched from Markdown because what I was missing in Markdown... Oh, there are two reasons I, I started using ASCII Doc. The first one is uh, I, I was missing a couple of features in Markdown, like footnotes, you know, there are some flavors of Markdown that do that, but stuff like the sides and admonitions, like tips and warnings and stuff and cross-references. And in Markdown, you always need to drop down to HTML for that. And I thought that was a little bit ugly. And uh, ASCII doc um, has a markup for all of these things. So it gives you a lot of ways to, uh, to structure, your, structure your content. And the other thing I like about ASCII doctor is that or ASCII Doctor, which is the Ruby implementation of ASCII Doc, it has layouts for all of these things. So, for example, a footnote uh, corresponds to a layout in the ASCII Doctor uh, library. So you can update those and and have your own HTML if you if you want to uh, change anything. The problem I have with ASCII Doc is that ever since I started using it on my blog, I've been fiddling with ASCII Doc uh, enough to stop me from from writing anything new since last year. So uh, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of fun to fiddle with, but um, I, I don't know if, if this is a if this is a pro or a con. But yeah, you'll uh, you'll spend less time writing. So that's uh, ASCII doc. And my other pick is uh, we've talked about it before, and I'm, I'm I'm sure it's already in the show notes. But I wanted to uh, address this uh, once more: is that interview that Nate Birkenbach did with uh, David Heinemann Hansen, 
It's about performance in Rails, and uh, they talk about that Antlus one is a feature thing we touched on, and caching in general, and how uh, how they do it at Basecamp. And I think uh, Eric, you called it a superpower. Now a lot of people understand, and um, this will get anyone a step closer to understanding it and how uh, Basecamp uses it. So it's a it's a good one to watch. I think it's an hour long or something, uh, but it's a. Uh, it's a it's a good watch, and that's it for me. Aside from uh, App Signal, of, of course. I actually I actually ran into ASCII Doc. Man, you and I were like crossing paths. I became a big fan of ASCII Doc earlier this week. I realized because I'm I'm helping a, another guy write a book, convert a PDF to a book, and uh, an HTML book. So I, I looked around and I found Gitbook, of course, which is an amazing tool. I should actually pick that as well. But um, Gitbook supports Markdown and it also supports ASCII Doc. And in Markdown, the thing that's really frustrated me in the past with Markdown is that you cannot add classes. You can't like set up true classes. So your Markdown ends up looking like a this crazy Frankenstein where, where Mark, the beautiful Markdown and ugly HTML are like are, are connecting. With ASCII doc, I think that you can do pretty much everything that you want to do with your styling and still keep it in that beautiful format. It's a little bit different, but yeah, I'm a big fan of it as well. Yeah, the, the the if you you start doing more crazy things, the 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 readability of the markdown or, or the the markup, I mean, will go down a little bit. But you can yeah. do crazy things like give table cells background colors and everything without having to resort to to uh, to HTML. So um, yeah, I've I've had a lot of fun playing around with it. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we'll wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week. All right, right. talk to you later. Take care, everyone. Thanks, bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.